glory to God and to be used by the church for the well-being of His people. Again, in this section, who's Paul talking to? The body of believers. So this gift, more specifically than anything, pertains to the church. That doesn't mean that this gift does not work outside the church, because I'll explain that, but that it's mainly for the church. One commentator says, Siegfried Grossman says, each individual healing is a gift of God's grace. The bearer of the gift has nothing in his hand. Each cure is a new charisma or new gift of God. It's not as though you carry, you have this, this weight on your shoulders full of gifts that you have and you just Give them out. No. The Spirit guides you to that person with that gift to heal. Just think about it. When Jesus was walking the earth, who did He heal, did it say? Everyone. He was a man filled with this gift. Who did He not heal? Those who could not believe. Remember in his hometown? He only did a few miracles because... He only killed a few sick because of unbelief. But there was an example given, actually in one of the books that was trying to say, well, healing is kind of a... It's not always God's will. But I actually got... It actually kind of irked me because the guy that made that point also said this thing, that this gift of healing is according to God's will. But he brought up the, the example of Jesus at the pool of Bethesda. Remember that story? Jesus goes to the pool of Bethesda, but what does he do? There are hundreds probably of people there seeking to be healed by dipping in the pool, but this one man who's paralyzed couldn't convince anyone to help him get in the pool. Why does Jesus only heal him? Because of faith. And this man could not get in the pool. God had caused that pool to be a place where people were healed. I mean, that's incredible. Talk about God's grace. But God, Jesus had come to that place for a specific person and it was Him. And so when someone is filled with this gift, when they have the gifts of healing, it will be specific. It won't be just machine gunning people to, to health. You're not going to go into a hospital and clean it out unless God directs you to do so. How many people use that as an argument against the gifts today? Well, if you had, if you believe healing was true, you just go to the hospital and clean it out. No. Jesus went through the pool of Bethesda and he only healed one man that we know of. Why? Because God's will was to heal that man that day. That doesn't mean that God didn't want these other people to be healed. 
God has His reasons we don't know. But what I want to encourage us with is God is the one who controls. It is His prerogative, not ours. And so when God begins to move in one of us, or more than one of us, in this gift, these gifts of healing, we need to realize it's not about us. We are just transmitters. We're just conduits of God's glory and this gift of healing. So not only does it indicate who we are, but it also emphasizes that God is the giver. For He is the one who gives the gifts through the Spirit for the people of the body. He's the one who gives it. He's continually giving. If He stops, it stops. And this should constantly remind us that God is constantly, continually the origin of healing. It's not a person. It is not a church. It is not a location. It is God. God is the creator of all that we know. And because He is the creator, He is able to heal and restore that to what it supposed to be. Why? Because sin brought sickness into the world, right? The moment that we come to life, the moment that we are born, we're already breathing breaths down to death. I know that sounds very morbid, but it's true. Our first breath is one breath less that we have to breathe. Because of sin. This wasn't the best that God had in the Garden of Eden. And one day we will not have sickness, right? In heaven. So this gifts of healing, healing in the church, faith in the church is God's plan for this church to experience His kingdom on earth. I hope we understand this. That's why I title the message, Kingdom Come. Because that's what Jesus was doing. He was proclaiming the Kingdom Come. He was proclaiming that His power was greater than Satan. The prince of the power of the air could not overcome Him. Jesus overcame the grave, and by doing that, He showed Satan that He had no power. And then He gave His authority to His disciples. Remember what Mark says about this? In Mark 16, verse 18, Jesus, in His commissioning of the believers there, the disciples, He says, they will lay hands on the sick and they will recover. Not they might recover. Not they they could possibly recover. They will. Now, I'm not necessarily certain that he's talking here about the spiritual gift of healing. I believe this is a gift that God gives to all believers. That if we have faith that this is what God said in Mark 16, 18, of course, some translations would like you to believe that this doesn't exist. You know why? Because they have rejected the sign gifts. Why? Why have they rejected the sign gifts? 
I believe they have rejected the sign gifts because they think that healing, miracles, prophecy, speaking in tongues are, for lack of better word, extrinsic to the Christian message. They're outside of there. There's something that's outside of it. They forget that healing and miracles and prophecy and tongues are intrinsic to the Christian message. And we'll get to that. It is essential. Not something that is, oh, well, that would be nice to have, but it's not necessary. That's the problem. They have separated. Those who have said that the gifts have ceased would have to throw out (laughs) the gifts of wisdom and knowledge, teaching, preaching, but they won't throw those out, right? Have you been to a church that denies the gifts that doesn't preach? No, but they'll use 1 Corinthians chapter 13 to deny the gifts that are looped in here with all these others. They'll pray for discernment from the pulpit and then deny that the Spirit moves in this way anymore. I'm sorry. I won't apologize for this because this is God's Word. There's no biblical excuse for saying the gifts do not mean or serve the church today. There's nothing. This one book that I was reading, it's been really good. I I don't agree totally with what the author says, but he says exactly, he says, we cannot make a good theological biblically-based argument against the move of the gifts today. Can't do it. It's not possible. He says, we can't even, in a, we can't honestly, in an academic manner, do this. So that's saying, here's this intellectual Christian who can see that it's impossible for us to deny that the gifts are for today from Scripture. Unless we separate the gifts outside of the message. So, how do we do this? So these gifts can use natural means. Now what do I mean by that? For example, we already mentioned Mark 16, 18, the laying on of hands. Or what about James 14, 5, 14, anointing with oil? They say, is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. So? Or Mark 6, 13, And they were casting out demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. Let me ask you a question. Does oil have a medicinal value? Well, it depends on who you talk to. Because cessationists will say, oh, yeah, in Mark, in Mark, in James chapter 5, verse 14, 
In those days, the, the oils had a medicinal value and they, they saw it as having the ability to heal. I'm serious. You think I'm joking. It's Honestly, I've heard this argument. And I'm looking at it like, I mean, actually I saw it in the, the sub, like the comments in a Bible that I was reading. I can't remember the name where I would label it so you wouldn't buy it, but um, <laughs> but it, it shocked me that it was there because at no time in history has olive oil been considered a, having healing properties. At no time in history has laying out of hands been a medicinal thing because if that was possible, then why won't the doctors just walk around and touch people? That'll heal them. Actually, what do they do between touching people? They wash their hands. Because they don't want to transfer what they got off of that person to the next one. Could you imagine if somebody was working in the COVID unit at the hospital and they left the COVID unit, didn't clean up, and then went and touched somebody that didn't have COVID? Everybody wouldn't be in an uproar. So... When God uses natural means or directions, I mean, like think of Jesus, how many different ways that He healed men. Some He said, hey, go to the priest and present yourselves. They weren't healed yet, but on the way they were healed. Or what about the man He spit on mud, rolled up, put it on His eyes? I mean, that wouldn't go over well today. Well, that, that mud must have had some kind of medicinal thing that fixes your eyesight from birth. I'm sorry if I sound sarcastic, but sometimes the arguments that you hear against healing are absolutely ridiculous. They have no ground in God's Word. So God will use natural things, men, women, to bring healing, but they are not the healer. He is the one who directing the healing. So it may be different. It may just be speaking a word. Right? It doesn't always include laying on hands. It may be something like what Jesus did. But it's not going to be the same for every person. That's why when you have the gifts of healing, when God gives that to you through His Spirit... You need to be discerning. You need to be listening to His voice. It's not going to be, okay, I'm just going to do a wave and everybody that's out there is going to get say, get healed. I mean, we've seen that, right? And we've heard the stories of what happens after the fact. We are not to imitate one another. We are to be led by the Spirit. That's what the Spirit-filled life is about, is in all these gifts, we are being led and revealed, God is revealing to us through His Spirit what we should do. He's not saying, look around and see what everybody else is doing and do that. No, He's saying, look at my Word, hear my voice, follow my direction. These natural means, they won't heal if they are not empowered by the Spirit. That is the key. No one will be healed by these means 
unless the Spirit is moving. So, oftentimes, people want to lump in, well, see, Jesus used mud and oil, so then God, there's other means of doing things. That, that those things have healing properties. They want to use that so that, oh, you can start doing the holistic medicine. I don't know if you know what that is. The all-natural, essentially the, the work of Indian shamans. You know, if you do this and that, then you'll be okay. I'm not denying that it doesn't help to have chicken noodle soup when you have a cold. Why? Wow, you need good nutrition, right? Your body needs something that can really help it. That doesn't d- deny that, or that you should stop brushing your teeth because... Your teeth will just be naturally healthy. Um, so, I mean, we used to drink Sprite too when we had a cold. I almost wonder if we faked it just so we could get Sprite because we didn't get Sprite any other time. <laughs> but whatever it may be, Our trust must always be in the work of God, not in these natural ways. And if this gifts, if the gifts of healing have been poured out on, on us and to individuals in this body, then they should be humble and marked by humility. If you look at the, the apostles, they had these gifts in a, a level that most people haven't experienced, and yet they were still humble. They had to be rebuked sometimes. Think Paul with Peter. Paul rebuked Peter. Did Paul Peter say, no, get away from me, Paul, I'm done. No. Peter realized that Paul was right, and he in humility repented and changed what he was doing. So this is, this is one thing about the sign gifts I see so often is a, a pride that rises up in people. I was in Guatemala at a, a charismatic church once, and I liked this church up to the point that this guy showed up, this American. Unfortunately, I had to hear his message in English and Spanish and understood both. Um, but he was the most prideful man I have ever heard. I mean, period. I mean, think of certain people on Twitter or whatever. He was extremely prideful, talking about how he had done these things, how he had prayed for rain not to fall in this certain area, and then how he had prayed that God would cause the rain to fall. Or how he had brought the Christmas tree to Cuba. Wow. That was a miracle. <laughs> but this man claimed to be, I don't, I can't remember if he put his name as apostle, whatever his name was. But after that, I never returned to that church. Because I thought, if this guy has any influence in this church, there is some major deception going on. Because he was so prideful 
that it just was, it was crazy. The sad thing is, it was the only church I'd ever been to in Guatemala where, well, only the second church, where I could actually hear the words to the songs I was singing because the music wasn't too loud. Which is probably one of the reasons I liked it because the music was beautiful. But the problem is, just because the music's beautiful doesn't mean the doctrine of the church is right. I would rather be in a church where I can't understand anything, I can feel the beat of the music in the back row that teaches the Word than a church that doesn't teach the Word and has beautiful music up front. That was not even in my notes, but anyways. So, (laughs) what I want to do this morning is to take you on a journey. We're going to get on a train. We're going to start on the Old Testament, and we're going to make our way to the book of Acts. It's a long trip. Hopefully we'll get there before noon. We might make a stop for drinks and uh, something to eat. But we're going to start in Elijah, with Elijah. If you'll turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 17. And the reason I want us to see examples of the gifts of healing in the Old Testament is to see what the people in the New Testament would have been expecting out of a Messiah. So if you look with me at 1 Kings chapter 17, I mean, here is a man of God. We talked about him already last week, but here is a man who predicts a drought And it's not until he prays for God to send rain that it rains. He calls down fire from heaven and it burns rocks. And in this story, he comes to this town at the direction of the Lord. And when he gets there, there's a famine. Why? Because he's prayed for no rain. Because God has directed him to do so. And so it's not rain, and God tells him to go to this lady's house. And what happens? He gets there, he meets this lady, and he says, Can you bring me water and some bread? And she said, I'm sorry. I don't have any bread. What I had, we were going to eat, and then we're going to die. He said, do what I say, and then God provides miraculously enough bread to last the whole time. The flour. So, if you're about to go to Sam's tonight to stock up on all your flour and your oil and your your meats because the apocalypse is coming... Here's an example of faith. I'm not saying that you can't have extra in your fridge. You should see our freezer. But we're not preparing for apocalypse. We just like good prices on meat. So when it goes cheap, we buy a lot. Um, But God will provide. This could fall under miracles right here, right? This was a miracle. This is a working of miracles. 
So, great. God has saved this widow and his wife, or his, her, her son. And now in verse 17, something happens. Up to this point, everything has been good. God has blessed her and her son. But in verse 17, it says, Now it came about, after these things, that the son of the woman, the mistress of the house, became sick. And his sickness was so severe that there was no breath left in him. What does that mean? He was dead. I think it's interesting that in the Hebrew, they use the word breath here. Why? Breath is also the word translated spirit. When your spirit is taken, you are dead. When your spiritual spirit is taken, you are dead. Anyway, side note. So, verse 18. So she said to Elijah, What do I have to do with you, O man of God? You have come to me to bring my iniquity to remembrance and to put my son to death. Now, Elijah is in a tight place. This woman's accusing him of putting her son to death. You know, you, you came and fed me, but only so that my son could die anyways. So what does he say? He said to her, give me your son. But he took him from her bosom, carried him up to the upper room where he was living, and laid him on his own bed. He called to the Lord and said, O Lord my God, have you also brought calamity on the widow with whom I am staying by causing her son to die? Then he stretched himself upon the child three times and called the Lord and said, O Lord my God, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. The Lord heard the voice of Elijah, and the life of the child returned to him, and he revived. The spirit returned to him. His spirit, his breath returned. He was revived. Elijah took the child and brought him down from the upper room into the house and gave him to his mother. And Elijah said, see, your son is alive. Then the woman said to Elijah, now I know that you are of a man of God and that the word of the Lord in your mouth is truth. A couple things. When Elijah prays, does he say, Lord, you must heal this boy? No. What does he pray? He says, I pray you, let this child's life return to him. Elijah realizes, I'm not a healer. You are. You alone can give him life. You alone can heal the death that is in this boy. Elijah is not relying on himself. He didn't say to the widow, hey, just give him here. Okay, I'm going to lay hands on you, anoint you with oil, and let's rub some salve on you, and let's do all these things and hope it works. 
No, he's being led by God. I mean, no other time in the Bible that I can think of, maybe in the book of Acts, does somebody lay themselves on top of a dead person? Can't remember if Peter did that. I'd have to think about it to do some research. But you don't see this anywhere else. It's not like Elijah was reading stories. Oh, yeah, this might work. Let me lay on this guy, this boy, and he'll get healed. No. He was crying out to God. He was being led by the Spirit of God, which we know rested upon him because when Elisha was going with him to be caught up, Elisha said, can you give me your spirit? He said, if you stay with me, don't give up. Keep coming. Give me a double portion, please. But the Lord heard the voice of Elijah. It was the Lord who healed this boy, not Elijah. Elijah was just a transmitter. He was just a delivery man. This woman believed him now and his message because he was preaching the truth. And he, she now knew it was truth because this man had a conversation with God and God heard him and God moved in this child's life. That's how she knew. So, Elijah isn't the Christ. We see his failures, right? But the Jews would have looked at Elijah and said, Wow, if Elijah did this, what will the Messiah do? He will be so much greater than this. His power will be unstoppable. Right? Okay. Let's start walking back to this, getting on the train. Oh, let's stop. Let's make a stop in Isaiah. Y'all okay with that? Y'all okay with uh, stopping at the train station, Isaiah 61? Before we, I mean, before we get to Jesus, it would probably be a good idea to stop here. We might need some refreshment before we Keep going. So Isaiah 61, verse 1 says, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the afflicted. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to captives and freedom to prisoners, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to grant those who mourn in Zion, giving them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a spirit of fainting, so that they will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. This is for His glory. Okay, took a quick stop. Now turn with me to Luke, chapter 4. As we're going to actually go to Luke 5, we're just going to look out the window on our way. Luke chapter 4. 
Verse 18. Jesus quotes this. Well, let's just read this, verse 16. He says, He came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. And a book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim reach to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed, to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. And he closed the book, gave it back to the attendant, attendant, and sat down, and the eyes of all the synagogue were fixed on him. And he said, Today the scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Can you imagine the authority with which Christ read this passage about himself? That word, bind up the brokenhearted in 61, is the same word when translated in the New Testament. It's the same word for healing. To heal the brokenhearted. Guess what? When 1 Corinthians uses the word for healing, it's the same one. Healing is intrinsic, as I said. It is essential to the gospel message because this is what the Messiah was going to do. The gospel includes this. The gospel is a holistic message, not a holistic medicine. I hope that makes sense. The gospel of Jesus Christ should affect us more than just spiritually. It should affect us physically, emotionally, and mentally. The gospel should transform us. We become new creations in Christ Jesus. And it should affect every part of our lives. That is why when we divorce health and healing from the gospel of Jesus Christ, we cut it short. The gospel is life-altering message. It's meant to restore all that has been destroyed. Healing brings to life the joy-filled reality that the gospel proclaims. Healing is a picture of what's going on inside. What does Paul say? He says, I pray that your soul prospers or your that you prosper as your soul prospers. I can't remember. I should have put the quote in. But he's saying, look, I want you to prosper outwardly as you're prospering inwardly. Have you ever met someone, met someone who was walking with the Lord and loved the Lord, who was sick all the time, upset all the time, angry all the time, couldn't get along with them? I've never met someone like that. You might meet someone who says they're a Christian, 
but their life proclaims something different. Right? We all experience that. Sometimes we experience it in our lives. We, we want to say we follow the Lord, but our lives are not in line with His Word. Separating healing from the gospel, in my opinion, is tragic. It really is. I think it's a result of fear. Well, what if it doesn't work? Because we've all, in this room, experienced times when we don't understand why so-and-so wasn't healed. Or why that situation ended that way? I'm not the judge. I don't know why. I don't understand. If I do, did, I would be say, I, I would be lying. This is something that God is still working. Lord, I don't understand, but I want to trust you. I don't, I don't want to give up just because I've seen cases where it didn't seem to work. I don't know why. We saw a little girl pass away. I don't know why we saw elders of this church pass away. Or a widow or someone like Miss Hood who loved the Lord. I don't understand. If I did, I would be the first person. But I do know God's Word is true. Jesus is faithful. And I will continue to trust His Word instead of making up excuses to not trust Him. It's not easy. When I think of the lives that have been hurt and broken because of those situations, but I do know God is faithful. And whatever His reasoning for what happened in those cases, one day we'll stand before Him and... And we'll be like, oh, I never realized that. I don't know. But I do know that we can trust God. So we've looked out the window. We saw this landscape. You know, actually, you can actually look out the window over here on the wall. What does that say? Surely He hath borne our pains and carried our diseases. I mean, we need to think about that. By His stripes we were healed. That means the gospel entails this. When Jesus died on the cross, He atoned. The atonement includes healing. Now, I know this is not popular. I've Actually, the book that I've been reading that I've liked mostly disagrees with me on this. I don't know what you do with by your stripes he, you were healed. I don't know what you do with that. Probably explain it away healed spiritually. That's one of the arguments I've heard. But by his stripes you were, not will be, but you were healed. So it's in Christ. It is essential to the gospel message. Okay, let's get to Jesus now. Too much sightseeing 
We might not make the train station before the noon bell. We don't want to get be late. So look at Luke 5. And here, Jesus has been preaching out the boat and makes disciples. Then he heals a, a leper right before we get to our text. And he tells the leper, don't tell anybody. Keep it a secret. That always works. If something life-changing happens in your life, are you going to keep it a secret? No. But he does, and so the people are following him. And at the end, he's healing them all of their sicknesses in verse 16, or verse 15. And then Luke puts a little something here I think could be helpful for us. It says, but Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Do you wonder where Christ had the power? He was in constant communion with the Father. He was in constant communion with Him. It says that when Jesus went into the wilderness, what does it say? The Spirit led Him into the wilderness. And what does it say when He came out? When He came out of the wilderness, temptation, it says, He was in the power of the Spirit that He was working. The fullness of the Spirit. Filled with the power of the Spirit. So, 17. Sounds like a fairy tale. One day, one day he was teaching, and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea, from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. Where did that power come from again? Relationship with the Lord, with the Father. The Spirit working through him. And some men were carrying a bed, on a bed, a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and set him down in front of him. So just picture the scene. There were about as many people as in this room. And there's just no more space. So imagine this church building full of people. It's possible. I remember those days, and they don't have to be the past. That's not the point of this message, but... So there's this house, and it's so crowded, and they no one wants to get away. They want to hear Jesus. They want to see what Jesus is doing. So they're just pumping in, and they're like, no, we don't care if your guys, your buddies can't walk. We're not letting you in. So these guys are like, well, you won't let us in. We'll find another way in. So they go up on the roof. Verse 19, but not finding any way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down through the tiles with a stretcher, with his, with his stretcher. 
into the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. I mean, these guys are persistent. We all need friends like this. Right? This guy couldn't do it for himself, but he had friends who also had faith. And how do we know that? Seeing their faith, he said, Jesus said. He saw their faith, not just this man's faith. He saw the faith of them all. They all believed that Jesus was able. So seeing their faith, he said, friend, take up your bed and walk. Is that what he says? What? Come on, Jesus, that's that's not what they came for. They didn't come to get their sins forgiven. They came so that this man could walk. Right? Not exactly. He said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. Wait, what? You think the paralytic looked around like, uh, what? You think his friend's up at the top like, hey, Jesus, that's not what we came. No, that's not what they were thinking. It's what the Pharisees were thinking, right? Verse 21, it says, the scribes and Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who, who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? What does Jesus say? But Jesus, aware of their reasonings. You mean to tell me that Jesus could hear them murmuring over the loud crowd around him? No, the Spirit directed him. He was given a spiritual vision of what they were saying. He answered and said to them, why are you reasoning on the heart? Which is easier to say? Your sins have been forgiven you or to say, get up and walk. What? I think we don't take this verse very seriously. What is Jesus saying? They're the same thing. I'm sorry if I'm a little excited. But that's what he's saying. What's harder to say? What is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying that they're the equivalent. They're the same thing. That means that when he forgave his sins, he could get up and walk. Just as much as when he said, your sins be healed, or your, stand up and walk, your sins are forgiven. And to prove this, because Jesus is equating sin with sickness, right? This was a common understanding to the Jews. They always believed that sickness was the result of sin. Always. And to prove that, if you look with me at John chapter 9. So his disciples, this is, I mean, they're common Jews. 
Hey, they're, they're fishermen, tax collectors. I mean, they weren't like the intellectual elite. Jesus didn't go and empty out the uh, universities to make have disciples. No, he just took everybody based on what he he saw, he wanted to do. So it says, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he would be born blind? So they assumed that he was blind because of sin, either of him or his parents. But what does Jesus say? Jesus answered and said, It was neither that this man sinned nor his parents, but it was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And he heals that man. Remember the Pharisees and scribes, they were upset then. They were like, Do you know who healed you? I don't know, but he healed me. I believe him. I was blind and now I see. They're like, I don't believe you. We need to make sure that you are actually the person who was blind. Even though all these witnesses say that, okay, we need to call your parents. And the parents wouldn't respond because they were afraid of getting put out of the synagogue. And he said, I know he's the Messiah because he gave me sight. Kind of goes back to Isaiah 61. Bring sight to the blind. So it wasn't uncommon at that time to equate sin with sickness. But the Pharisees didn't like that because they they knew that. They agreed with that. But when Jesus actually said, your sins are forgiven, that got under their skin. Because they didn't want to believe that Jesus was forgiving sins. Does that mean that every sickness that we experience in life is related to a specific sin of ours or our parents? Not necessarily. But sickness, generally speaking, is the result of the fall. There would be no sickness, no death, if there were no fall. So all sickness is the result of sin, whether personal or not. That's not popular, by the way. Even though that's what Jesus is saying here. So what does he do? He says his sins are forgiven. I wonder if that paralytic knew what sin it was. It's possible. It's possible Jesus was dealing with the greatest issue this man had, which is... Sin, right? He knew the guilt that this man had for his sin. And so he addressed that instead of his physical representation of that sin. But to show the Pharisees that he was not only forgiving sin... This is what he did. He says, but so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said, your sins are forgiven. Is that what he said? No, he says to the paralytic, I say to you, get up and pick up your stretcher and go home. 
You see how Jesus flips the script? He's saying, to show you that he has permission to forgive sins, get up your stretcher and go home. He's again equating forgiveness of sins with healing. Why do you think in Mark eleven twenty four it says to forgive when you pray? Sin in our lives is often a, res- a direct implication of sickness. Not always. Again, Jesus gave us that example with the blind man. But we should, when sin is, when sickness comes in our lives, we should be looking at our heart. Lord, okay, is there anything in me that is causing this? Is there bitterness? Is there whatever it may be? So what did the paralytic do? His sins have been forgiven. He's been told to get up and walk. It says, immediately he got up before them, picked up what he'd been laying on, and went home glorifying God. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were filled with fear, saying, We have seen remarkable things today. One day in a village. Sounds like a good good movie script. Of course, most movie theaters wouldn't like that because that would prove that God is a powerful God who does what He says He will do. I mean, one day in Capernaum? Really? Out in the middle of nowhere? No one cares about Galilee? There's a bunch of hillbillies out there. Just a bunch of rednecks. Why would God work there? Because God doesn't care. Location doesn't matter. When God decides to move, location is not important. Yeah, you'd expect Jesus to do these things in Jerusalem, but Galilee? Uh, it's a little sketchy. That might be, uh, that might be a false prophet there. Us Pharisees and scribes, we, we can't, we, we shouldn't be expected to leave, leave Jerusalem to find the Messiah. I mean, that would be too much. Just imagine going to West Virginia to find the Messiah. With the stereotypes that we have of people from West Virginia, of course. Not that I dislike West Virginia. It's pretty. But just think of the worst stereotype area in the United States and go there. That's pretty much Galilee. God does not, is not a respecter of location when he decides to heal. Lastly, get on the train with me and we'll End of the book of Acts with Peter. Acts chapter chapter 9. Acts 9, verse 32.
So Saul, now Paul, Paul's just been converted in chapter 9. Finally, the church is enjoying some peace because Paul, or Saul, was adamant about killing and imprisoning Christians. And in verse 32, we see that Peter is now traveling around. It says, Now as Peter was traveling through all these regions, he came down also to the saints who lived in Luda. This is, I think, the right pronunciation. There he found a man named Aeneas, who had been bedridden eight years. It's a long time. For he was paralyzed. Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. Immediately he got up, and all who had lived at Luda and Sharon saw him, and they turned to the Lord. It's just a little bitty, this is three verses. But there's so much here that I think helps us understand the gifts of healing. What does Peter say? Does he lay hands on him? According to this passage, does he lay hands on him? No. See, we've seen so many examples of different ways. He just says, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. He doesn't say, I'm a healer, I'll heal you. No. He's pointing him to Christ. If you see someone out there who claims to have a direct connection with God to heal, and they walk around acting like they're something special, walk away. Because Peter didn't do that and he was an apostle. He would walk down the street and people would be healed by the shadow that was cast. That's how powerful the Spirit was upon him. Peter knew it was Christ healing and he believed it. And he'd never let that pride in his ability keep him from being used by God. That's why when someone begins to give themselves a title or they have a ministry where they begin to make themselves something, I really start to get wary because pride should not be a part of any of the spirits moving. That's what Paul is getting at. He's writing to the Corinthians because they have all the gifts flowing, and yet there's so much pride. Oh, I'm a part of this group. I'm a part of that group. If that's not pride, I don't know what is. Let me ask you a question. If you go to a university... And you cheer for that team, what do they call that? School pride. And sometimes they rate schools based on how much school pride they have. 
Now, Kentucky, the University of Kentucky has a lot of school pride. You want you to know how I know? If you wear red on UK's campus, you will probably be run off. Especially if it has a bird emblem on it. UofL, on the other hand, does not have a lot of school pride. And I know that personally because I went there and I wore UK on campus all the time. I played basketball in their gym with UK apparel on all the time. I almost never wore anything with UofL except when I played rugby. That was the only time. And no one ever said a thing to me. That is really poor school pride. Not to talk, not to mention how bad their fans were at games. If they were winning by a hundred, they left. If they were losing by ten, they left at halftime. They didn't stay for the whole game. If it looked like they were going to lose, they were just, oh, I got to get to my car so I don't get stuck in traffic. Or if they were going to win, guess what? I've been to UK football games. I know they play football. Um, and people stay to the end, shockingly, no matter how terrible it is. I don't know if it's because they want to consume items that are not very great, but I think that's the only reason we have a football team in Kentucky. Anyways, total. But my, my point is, when we decide to break our church up into schools that we're proud of, because this person has this ministry and that one and blah, blah, blah. That is not of God. Pride has never been a work of God. And there is no reason for someone who is moving in the Spirit of God to begin to draw people to themselves as some great person. We're going to find out when we read the next section of 1 Corinthians chapter 12 that this is not of God. We are called to be in unity, and no matter what your gift is, you need to be confident that God is using you. This is for the glory of God and the unity of the church. The reason I'm hitting it home on this gift specifically is because this is the one I see the most abused. That in miracles. We want to start writing books about how to heal. Uh, here's a good book. The Bible's pretty clear. Amen. It's the Spirit that heals. It's not us. And, G- and Peter makes that clear. Jesus Christ heals you. Get up and make your bed. There is no lack of healing in the New Testament. Nowhere. There's nowhere where Jesus says, oh, can't heal you. There's areas that God doesn't move as greatly because there's doubt and unbelief. Or God has a specific person to deal with, like at the Pool of Bethesda, but you don't see in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, people going around saying, oh, we can't heal that group. We can't heal them. No, we see God moving in the church for healing. And I don't believe that it stopped. I believe that God will give this gift 
these gifts of healing to our church. I don't know who He will use. I pray it's me. I pray it's every one of us. I know that God gives to whom He wills. And we should be seeking God that He would use us in this specific area. Because God desires to move in His church for His glory. The gifts of healings are not about us. They're about His glory. And I know I feel like I'm saying this every week, but that is the reason many people are turned off by sign gifts because it becomes about men and instead of about God. And so we need to, as a church, rebuke that and say, this is not what it's going to be. When God begins to move in our midst, we will not set ourselves up as some on some pedestal as though we are super spiritual. No. It is the grace of God that He moves by His Spirit in this church alone. If He doesn't move, this church is hopeless. If my preaching isn't empowered by the Spirit of God, it's useless and worthless. If your understanding isn't empowered by a Spirit, why do you come? There's no reason to come. Because you're not getting anything. If God is not speaking to us this morning, why are we here? We're not here to hear me preach, I promise you. Preaching is foolish. But if the Spirit of God is moving through preaching, it is powerful. It's transformative. And it transmits God's Word to our hearts. Healing is no different. I don't want us to become, well, I want to elevate these gifts. Yeah, Paul does call them higher gifts, greater gifts that we should be seeking after. But they're not the only ones. So we should be seeking God to use us in the gifts that would be best and most needed for our church. I believe God desires to give all these gifts. Are we going to seek Him? Are we going to just sit back, well, if it happens to me, then I'm sorry. I don't think that how that's how it works. Paul is clear. Seek earnestly the gifts. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Your mercy and Your grace to us. Lord, we thank You that You've given gifts to the church not so that we can be someone great, but, Lord, so that we could function as a body. That the needs of the body are met because each of us is moving and supplying what each joint needs because Your Spirit is working in us to work us together as a living organism empowered by Your Spirit. Lord, don't take Your Spirit from this church. Don't take Your Spirit from our lives. Let us cry out like King David, Lord. Restore the joy of our salvation. Revive us, O Lord, in Your Spirit. Fill us afresh with Your Spirit.
that not only the gifts of healings, but every gift described would be moving in our midst. Let us not despise those with gifts that we think of as less than others. But let us seek earnestly, Lord, to be used by you as a body for one another and for the glory of your kingdom. I pray, Lord, you would go with us this week. That you would encourage us and strengthen us. We pray this, Lord, now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, I pray.